Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe September 18th, 2009. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. And for more information with regards to calling into the show or getting onto the show's chat, which has been on fire in recent episodes and already started in a good way this evening, also check out biota.org slash podcast. So the next episode will be recorded 8pm Pacific, Friday, October 2nd. We may have Mark Badeau on. The next couple of shows are going to be rather interesting because I want to get on Tom Ray for 20 Years of Tierra, and that will probably have to be an extraordinary show, possibly uh, over the weekend following October 2nd. But I also would like to get on Mark Badeau, and similarly, that may be in the weekend following October 2nd too. So there will be a show on October 2nd. I'm not totally sure what it's going to be about, but it may contain Mark Badeau. It may contain a completely different topic. But if you listen to Biota Live on a regular basis, the way you find out this information is by joining the Biota Conversations mailing list. And you go to the Biota site, biota.org, and join the Biota Conversations mailing list. And it's also a great opportunity if you have particular interests in artificial life development or you're just starting out to get in contact with a wide variety of folk who uh, you know, have appeared in previous Biota Lives and get discussing with regards to artificial life. Some news and notes. Well, there was a lot of feedback from uh, last Biota Live. It was quite a heated Biota Live in parts, but I think an interesting uh, couple of topics discussed. I received a lot of feedback uh, from folks that agreed with uh, William R. Buckley. And actually, we have Eric Burton on the call, so I'm going to bring Eric in. Hello, Eric. Oh, hi, Tom. Good to talk to you again. So you were on the first half of last week's show, but you also listened in, I guess, to the second half. Yes, what I was. What was your general feeling with regards to the kind of discussion associated with prizes and artificial life? I mean, what's your own vision associated with prizes and artificial life? Well, I heard Peter Diamandis say that putting a prize out for a solution to a problem weighs it down in the uh, solution space. It sort of converts it into low-hanging fruit, the good solutions, that is. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, certainly I listened to this show yesterday because I, I received email and I don't think really I put forward my own point particularly well, but my own experience, as I said, from kind of 15 years' worth of these things, and I also want to make the distinction that, you know, what what you get with a research grant is very different right. than a prize. Right. And, you know, a research grant is ultimately something which you write maybe, a, you know, a synopsis for and then submit, and then you get a bunch of money to actually develop what you wrote about. Whereas a prize is really a kind of concluding thing and the amount of work and effort that goes into actually developing software for a specific prize yeah. isn't really fathomable unless you've had that experience. And I think that was my, my background, I mean, with regards to these kind of things. I got a grant in 1997 for a project called The Mushroom Boy, which was about taking artificial life concepts into almost kind of an urban terrorism simulator and... Having been awarded the grant, I went in, uh, this was with the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Science and Industry Research Organisation in Australia, and it was for a relatively substantial grant. I can't remember the exact amount, but it was at least six months, if not a year's worth of quite reasonable salary. 
And I went in, having, having been awarded this prize, and they told me, even though this wasn't a condition of the contest or anything like that, that I would have to turn all intellectual property over to them as part of the prize. And I walked away immediately from that because, right. you know, that wasn't what I was interested in doing. I understand. Well, you know, uh, Tom, I, I admire your resolve. Uh, I think a good model for A-Life prizes would be the Wilson-Leary Eighth Circuit model of consciousness. Um, we have sims now that have nailed the first one, but uh, not a lot that show social hierarchies and uh, territorial displays, which is uh, only circuit two of eight in this model. You could uh, set a goalpost there with a cash prize, and then a third one for tool-using intelligence, and a fourth for uh, refined social intelligence and the formation of culture. Yeah, I agree. And I think what will be interesting is having Tom Ray on in a few weeks' time, because he's certainly very caught up in, in that kind of thinking. I think... I'm not sure where he'd put Tierra, but similarly, I mean, this is this is Larry Yeager's background and hopefully some of the feedback that he'll be able to give when he calls in as well. I, I agree entirely, and I think that's a, that's an interesting eight-step uh, kind of test. But, I mean, I would imagine that we're probably up to about three or four already with artificial life. I mean, that's demonstrably what Larry is trying to do with Polyworld currently. Yeah, exactly. These are circuits of consciousness, so it's pretty significant. It seems to me we broached the ethics question that almost the instant we have a creature that can distinguish good from bad. But uh, I'm still trying not to worry about it. As, as you know, I've been working with Critterding a lot lately. It's just released Beta 10. Anyone who listens to this out of the archives or anything should go and get their copy at critterding.sourceforge.net. Uh, because we want everyone to try it, as far as I know, and I would welcome a, to be corrected. I think this is the first time that creatures with vision have been put in an A-Life sim with physics, ever. So it's incredibly rich. Yeah, I think it's an interesting problem. I mean, uh, certainly the Framstick stuff are creatures with some degree of simulated vision, maybe not to the level of crediting. And I think, well, what happens... Well, there is a camera piece in Framsticks. I think they lack that. Hmm. Which, uh which, as was pointed out to me, is probably the reason they require an equilibrium sensor, the mercury switch in framsticks. That, that could be why. Could possibly, but, I mean, that's also to do with stability and the fact that they have kind of moving appendages as well. Yeah, it's a good idea. So, yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing here is just that we need a better, broader surveying of these artificial life uh, projects, and you're right. I mean, I think the... Uh, you know, the, the, the eight... Are they called the eight realms or the eight steps of consciousness or the... the this metric could certainly it's be an interesting... The eight circuit. Eight circuits, that's right. Yeah, it goes all the way up, and I figure we can't have the, uh, maybe the top, maybe we can't have the eighth one in a machine unless you uh, have a port to the Internet for them to find, and they can actually get on IRC and stuff in, in an exterior universe. That would be very much like a circuit eight experience for one of these animals. So you certainly. Could include that, and they would have the whole uh, panoply at that point. Yeah, it was interesting doing the surveying for tonight's show because I contacted Larry and... Uh, Larry Yeager and John Klein independently and they both certainly had, had similar future visions with regards to I guess the, the, the seed that Bruce Damer put out with regards to the Evo well, grid Faster than light alien radio is what manifests for uh, organisms with nervous systems in our world at these levels of consciousness at hefty doses of psilocybin but please uh, go on Yeah, so I mean I, I, I agree with you that if there was this kind of you see, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm averse to the term prize with regards to this because I think what we found is through a community we've been able to at least reach the, the, the fourth circuit in some regard. Certainly there's some debate associated with that. 
But I think you can actually get that far just with a community that has active discourse and seems to all be kind of irking their way towards some kind of goal. So, I mean, maybe either subconsciously or consciously, it'd be interesting to have Tom Ray on because he, he writes with regards to this very issue, um, both with regards to um, kind of human neurochemistry and also simulated neurochemistry, you know, yeah. whether, whether this is the actual aspiration for all artificial life developers fundamentally. I mean, do you see us as a community actually reaching these goals without the need for a prize, Eric? Well, it's hard to say. You know, I made a post, I think, to the singularity list today, just reminding everyone because I've heard these big prices being bandied about lately for what AGI might cost. And I said it could be uh, produced by someone in his basement who makes a program that gluts itself on the Internet and starts to speak coherent sentences and uh, comprehend better than a human does. You know, as far it could uh, come out of nowhere, as far as we know. I don't think uh, it's necessary to associate a cost with it. It would cost us nothing then except for the uh, unpaid hours of work the guy did on it. It would be worth that. Certainly. I mean, the feedback that I've given recently with regards to all these developers, I mean, when, when Dick Gordon was here specifically, was that you couldn't actually afford to pay all the artificial life developers that have contributed to the community so far. I mean, you just you couldn't raise that kind of money. We have another call on the line, and I believe it is Bruce Damer, so let me just bring him in. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Tom. Oh, Bruce Damer. So we have Eric back on tonight's show. I got a lot of feedback, as you might expect, from the last Biota Live associated with the, the discourse that William provided about the need for prizes, and I've had correspondence this week from Tom Ray, uh, John Klein and Larry Yeager with regards to, well, in Tom Ray's case, what he's doing currently and appearing on a future Bios Live. But Larry and John, they all seem to echo the same thing, which um, ironically vends perfectly into your, your other life associated with, uh, with the Leary Archive. Eric, do you, want to, do you want to discuss your idea of the prize and how it relates to the, the Timothy Leary's thinking? The prize? Well, oh, yeah. the pos- well I was thinking... Um... I, I was thinking, and there are a few models, really, that I think apply to A-Life pretty interestingly, like Maslow's Pyramid of Needs, but I was thinking the Wilson-Leary eight-circuit of level, eight-circuit model of consciousness was the best way to uh, hinge hinge uh, goalposts on the development of artificial life, or at least a good way you could uh, have increasing cash prizes for a territorial displays at two, and uh, tool using intelligence at three, and formation of culture at four, and then... Uh, you know, if these things start to acquire hedonic states, fifth circuit functioning, then you can get a million dollars, something like that. What do you think, Bruce Damer? Well, what was interesting, and it's something I neglected to bring up on the last call, was I went to see Richard Dawkins in 2001 in Oxford uh, with Stuart Gold, and Richard had been a speaker at Biota 2. So we were familiar. He was almost going to come to Digital Burgess, but they had a, a last-minute cancellation. And I talked about uh, something we were calling the Alive Prize. And that was a little bit like this idea in that each year um, there would be, in a sense, it would be a scoring system. It wouldn't necessarily be a cash prize at all. Uh, so each year there would be a, a group that would look at it. It's like a figure skating championship where you hold up signs saying 7.2 for style and 5.9 for execution. But you would have a group that would hold up their signs and say, you know, on the on the five classifications of, of how well your, your simulated ecosystem is doing, uh, we're giving you these 
these little red stars or blue stars or gold stars or numbers. And it would be a very encouraging thing uh, to, to people building whole systems that try to do the, the, the proto-life or the, the, the A-life thing. And no, absolutely. Was, a series of goalposts is absolutely essential. I mean, even within the... Uh even within one sim, if you could have uh, graduated fitness functions based on goalposts, that would really move things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Professor Dawkins was very interested in that and was willing to uh, be a part of it uh, in some way. He said, "I said I'm not sure I would." He said, "I would be very interested to help set the initial framework or what the goalposts are would be of the different types of goalposts. Maybe one of my graduate students or." colleagues would be the ones that would be looking in every year if this was presented. So in a way, it's, it, it's a prize of a different sort. It's what you'd get in kindergarten for making progress. Uh, yeah. It's not a cash thing, and it's not, a, you know, it's not something that, goes, that doesn't go awarded. Everyone gets a, a little star on the, on the grid on the wall. Merit. Well, I mean, that is why we could see some real, uh, real work appearing if there were some cash prizes. But I think the interesting the interesting point, which has come through this discussion, but also the correspondence that I've had over the past week, is that independent of a cash prize, you know, Larry on one side crediting with regards to uh, what Eric is talking about. I mean, I think Polyworld crediting possibly things through Neat. These kind of things have worked their way up to at least um, Leary's fourth circuit and possibly even into the hedonism fifth circuit i mean i think we're moving in the right direction through having a community discourse irrespective of there being a cash prize and maybe this is the point with regards to grading that by discussing and i think you're central to this bruce through the evo grid because certainly the feedback that i got from larry and john independently was that they both want to create evo grid like components for for both Polyworld and Brevet in the future. They see the network as being the next critical thing for their uh, respective simulations to kind of take on. So, I mean, maybe through this discourse, maybe through this kind of collective vision of what we're, what we're describing through things like BioLite and through the various conferences, we are, in fact, doing better than a cash prize could ever do. Yeah, I, I believe if, if, in a sense, and this the original EvoGrid Broad, the idea was, that everybody would be networked and, and critters and ecosystems would be flowing back and forth and things would start to interact just like the Internet itself. And in a sense, it, it's wonderful that idea sort of caught fire in the community. I'm glad it did. And if we produce, the upshot of all this is that a number of us over time may produce networked things, either like EvoGrid Broad or EvoGrid Deep, which is the current chemical-inspired single simulation evil grid. But if such network systems existed, then you could do the annual goal, goal post setting and, and scoring and, and gold star giving of uh, for those systems. Um, you know, in some sense, I mean, the Linux community does this a little bit too. You know, the Linux kernel group or the, the broader Linux community kind of gives awards for the best utilities. Uh, people who have come up and done uh, on their own time, um, they're, they're awarded these these recognitions of contributing to the common platform. 
So maybe maybe we are in fact doing the inaugural version of this award this evening because I mean the topic for this evening was really to explore and discuss existing open source artificial life programs that were really critical. I mean in, in terms of I, I was so excited, you know, the crediting beta ten hit within days of your show on Brevet and Polyworld, Tom, because it's very much a uh, spin-off of the Polyworld concept. Uh, I saw something approaching what uh, Critterding has sort of come past now called Achilles a while ago that had memory leaks and was out of development, and it looked like it could have been an ex-Poly world. It turned out it wasn't going to be. And I think what Larry Yeager is trying to do with Polyworld currently is is basically make it more compatible with a, with a wide variety of, of open-source concepts. I mean, we'll, we'll get to Polyworld in a, in a few minutes, but... Eric, as we have you on, and as you've been playing with Critterding probably what, for at least five betas, if not more, do you want to give some kind of general description to it, how it moves beyond Polyworld and what you see when it's finally released formally? Yeah, well, you know, we've got... Uh, I mean, it was one thing we had in the start when it was very much a Polyworld knockoff was the two-dimensional retina. So these things were sensitive to the height of objects and... Uh, those could be all different sizes. I, uh, I tried a few runs early on with really huge brains and small populations, so it would go at uh, reasonable speeds. I added wrapping at the edge of the world and uh, a secondary fitness function to rank these in a graveyard and reseed from them if the population went extinct. Uh, and in that way, I hope to get more advanced behaviors from the larger brains, you know, but uh, ultimately now I run with the default settings. Now that we've added physics, it really... Uh, changed everything, and the brain spent a lot of time now learning how to move these bodies, which there were discrete operations for before. In the old sim, we saw these brains get uh, used to the idea of moving towards food and sort of avoiding one another uh, in a big hurry on a fast machine. You could see that in a day, but you really have to evolve for a while longer now. It's sort of a quest. Trying to get a lot of people on board, though, because it's also a lottery, Without a certain number of cycles per second, you're very much in the lottery with this kind of software, and uh, something could appear in half an hour that is mind-blowing, and on the other hand, you could wait for days. And in terms of what it actually looks like, I mean, it's very much in the style of Polyworld in terms of it being, and I'd, I'd correct me if I'm wrong, but fundamentally a two-dimensional world with kind of integrated blocked com blocky components is... Is there a 3D kind of undulating component to it, or is it still all fundamentally 2D, Eric? No, you're correct. There is an undulating component now, Tom. It, the third dimension has been sort of re-added, and they uh, have physics now with bullet. The food falls from the sky, and it might roll, um, roll a short distance. Uh, I just heard today maybe if it was round, it would be faster. The creatures' bodies are segmented now. The pieces are attached to each other at various positions. They have a set of mutation operations for that. A whole phenotype, uh, which can get up to a certain size. And in terms of the application itself, I, I had a look at the like I had a look at the link. I, I wasn't sure whether. I mean, is it just Linux currently, or for Mac and Windows users? Can they pick up versions as well? Can you describe the building process for people that want to get it running? Yeah, it's just for Linux. It's really easy to compile. The author, Bob Key, he packaged a copy of Bullet, so you don't need to set up Bullet yourself. And uh, I'm pretty sure most people can just download the, the 
tarball for beta 10 from the uh, critterding.sourceforge.net page. And, uh, and has anyone tried to run it through um, X11 on Mac, for example, in terms of the X Windows version for Mac and gotten the Mac version working? Have you heard anything like that? No, I don't think anyone has. It's based on SDL now, so even going to Windows shouldn't be that hard. Right, right. No, I've, I've played with uh, with SDL in the past, so it's, um, it's relatively easy to port. But I think... It's so open-ended. So open-ended right now. I've been using fairly competitive settings for about a day, just trying to get a new species. But I've taken existing species some distance in this sim, and the brains, the brains tend to get larger, and the, uh, the behavior slowly improves. And in terms of Polyworld, uh, I mean, uh, it's a pity that Larry isn't on because certainly he's got a new fellow who's done a lot of porting. I think he has a, a motive version for uh, Linux that he's he's working with currently. When you ran Polyworld, did you run it on Linux? Uh, yeah. No, I haven't got Polyworld to run. Okay. This would be a good opportunity to speak to Larry Yeager, excuse me, about getting Polyworld running because I've uh, never figured out how to compile it. My understanding is that there is a new fellow who's working on it. And um, what, Why don't we just get into the Polyworld set of the discussion? That might make it easier. I'll scroll down to my Polyworld notes. But uh, he has a new fellow who's working on it currently by the name of... Uh, Jordan, someone, Jordan Purr, who apparently um, has, has changed all the, the building options. Larry's maintaining the Mac version, but my understanding is uh, Jordan Purr is now uh, changing it over to, to Linux and, and possibly even a Windows version. I have played with it on the Mac quite a bit. In fact, I rewrote the Polyworld uh, neural network brains um, into Noble Ape, so the Noble Ape brains and the Polyworld brains could interact competitively. And certainly my, my experimentations with Polyworld was it was relatively easy to download and build for Mac, but I haven't tried it for other platforms. I think my main concern was the... Um, well, actually, this shouldn't be such a problem with Linux. The um, OpenGL was relatively heavily intertwined uh, with the actual, you know, uh, creature code and uh, related world code, but I don't think that should pose any problems for Linux. So my, my understanding is that it should be relatively easy to run on Linux if there isn't already a, a Linux version available. Yeah. Uh, but Larry emailed me uh, quite a detailed list of things that were coming through Polyworld currently. He has uh, a couple of developers working on it pretty solidly, and also at ECAL, which went on this week, the uh, European Conference of Artificial Life, there was a group that uh, displayed the first paper associated with Polyworld that was completely independent from Larry's work. They went in uh, and looked at uh, temporal changes in cluster coefficients and basically just a lot of these kind of cognitive metrics, um, which I had been discussing with Larry, I think pretty well from when he first appeared on Biota Live. Um, so from that, they were able to pull out what he's calling the Brain Connectivity Toolbox, or BC which you can get to brain-connectivity-toolbox.net, um, which is being moved to C++. I'm not sure whether it came from uh, Polyworld initially, but there's, there's some connection with Polyworld in terms of actually extracting uh, cognitive metrics, which really was a lot of the stuff that Larry and I discussed when he first appeared on, on Biota Live. There is a phi measure of consciousness, which you can get to at consciousness.google.com code.com, Google code being one word, and this 
builds on uh, Virgil Griffith's work, and obviously Larry and I discussed Virgil Griffith's quite heavily um, when he last appeared uh, on Bios Alive. But have you heard of the um, the consciousness phi metric at all, Eric? No, I haven't heard of anything like that, Tom. So, I mean, this would be quite exciting if Critterdink could uh, link up with what Larry is doing currently in terms of being um, maybe a possible competitor or maybe, I mean, my interest with regards to getting noble ape cognitive simulation in kind of compare and contrast with Polyworld was actually to hybridize a, a better brain in the long run, to have real metrics in terms of collection of food, in terms of survival, perhaps in terms of these kind of hedonism metrics that you were discussing. And I think the late has brain visualization. Certainly. So, I mean, I, my interest was, and this came through in Nature Inspired Informatics, I wrote a chapter and talked quite a bit about the kind of metrics that could be used in a, in a competitive sense between all these um, uh, artificial intelligence in a simulated environment kind of uh, simulations, which are, are fundamentally part of artificial life. So the excitement of having you know, two, three, four of these style simulations in not necessarily active competition, but certainly something that could be written about. Um, I mean, I'm not sure where Larry actually puts all this information. He he did it in an email to me uh, explicitly, but I'm not sure if it's collected anywhere specifically. So as you are obviously participating, Eric, you can go back through the recording afterwards and, and go to those specific sites and put the Critterdink folk in contact with Larry and, and get them you know, get them in this kind of development metric as well in terms of, uh, you know, working on, on fire consciousness and this kind of stuff. Polyworld should, uh, should have a physics engine in there. You know, that's, that's why Critterding is so uh, futuristic. Well, I think Larry is talking about that. Earlier in his, uh, in his email, he talked about moving um, from some of the, uh, you know, standard blocks that were in Polyworld and ultimately, I think, consolating surfaces is really critical for something like Polyworld, although scanning it's through... the work of Carl Sims, you know, that's what's being uh, redone in Critterding right now from the ground up. Certainly. But for these complex survival tasks that Carl Sims didn't do, like his work didn't appear to be about. Yes. Uh, it's pretty open-ended. We keep trying to think of things to add to this world now that it's actually 3D. The possibilities are just dimensionally expanded, and it's difficult to pick a direction. Or uh, In terms of predator-prey and this kind of stuff, I mean, is, is that the next step with Critterdink, or is there already predator-prey? No, there is predator-prey. You've got uh, omnivores in there now. They can eat both kinds of food if you enable that. I think there's a flag whether or not one is an omnivore. And... Uh, then, yeah, you should see predator-prey dramas unfold. Just the other day, I saw two uh, two species existing at the same time in Critterding, one with almost no body but a huge mouth that would be pushed around by the others. Uh-huh. It would exist in between them, and uh, they would bump it into food. Kind of interesting uh, parasitism. But we've yet to see a predator-prey drama unfold. Obviously, that would be a good thing a good thing to see. That would come with uh, territoriality and... Uh, pod or flocking behavior, recognizing one another following. Certainly, certainly. So I think what we've described in this particular space is that there are, you know, there are emerging simulations, there are kind of legacy simulations that have aspired the uh, emerging simulations. Bruce, as you listen in, I mean, this obviously isn't the Evo group, but this must be very exciting in terms of your historical following of artificial life. Yeah, the artificial life, as we know, was was born in the 
for the most part, I mean, certainly a lot of the ALIFE developers were on the net in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, but it was born in a different time. Um, and it was there was no time, there was no crowdsourcing, no large-scale open-source group things, and really the concept of the open-source license uh, was just being formalized in those years. So come into the, you know, end of the first decade of the 21st century and tremendous ability to work together on projects and to have things, something like Polyworld or Carl Sims Creatures or other things uh, come alive again as they have in, in, in Brevi, of course, um, in, in an open source framework, in a crowdsourcing model, uh, in, in the YouTube way of sharing the visuals and, and promulgating the project. It's a, totally exciting because the original work like Tierra and NetTierra and all those things deserve a second go-round uh, with new tools and physics engines and networkability, and they, they really deserve it. There's nothing inherently, no good reason to reinvent good algorithms and good thinking uh, if one can take the originals and, and uh, beef them up. And contemporary computing is pushing that so much further. I mean, obviously, you know, Carl Sims was using, you know, thinking machine-style technology, which is now relatively trivial with the, with existing processes. And what interested me, particularly with uh, uh, William R. Buckley and the use of Dolly and the kind of emergence of cellular automata or the new renaissance of cellular automata and potentially chemical automata going into the future, is that all these things just have a huge computation injection, which enables the kind of... Uh, emergent behavior that uh, Eric was describing. So to talk more specifically about Breve, I contacted John Klein in the past couple of weeks. Um, obviously, John Klein has a, has a, a, a new baby and um, his development time has, has been reduced, but he's interested in, in rewriting um, in terms of new features, new functionality, uh, and also this amazing kind of uh, networkability discussion that we've had with regards to the Evo grid. And it's interesting thinking of a tool like Breve with the addition of kind of networkability. And also, I mean, I've advocated uh, folk using Breve for things like crediting in terms of moving them into something which is already existing and probably could benefit greatly from the kind of feedback and constructive use. But I mean, what you're describing, Eric, in terms of the processor cycles and the need for speed, is crediting really like is there a visualization component and then a processing component? Is it neatly divided or is it relatively intertwined in the code that you've looked at? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's handled by OpenGL. Huh? Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure the uh, physics in Breve are hand coded. Yeah, I mean, my understanding with regards to what John Klein tried to do with Breve was really initially he had a kind of grab bag of of ideas and very simple physics was a part of that. But certainly my discussions with him in the past couple of years, maybe the first four years, actually relate to a far more kind of modular architecture associated with Breve. And I think John is particularly receptive to people who want to come in and rewrite large sections of it or actually remove large sections and just use other aspects of Breve. So, I mean, certainly my own experiences with John have been very positive in terms of him giving uh, very detailed uh, and very um, very timely feedback with regards to the use of Breve. And having experimented with the code somewhat myself, I would, I would encourage others to get involved, even if Breve is either a visualizer or maybe a component of the interface of Breve is used in a, in a new simulation. I mean, John, whilst he doesn't have a lot of... Uh, Active development time is certainly very receptive to giving to giving good and quick feedback. Right. 
And I think if they've written it in OpenGL already, I mean, they're already, you know, more than halfway there in terms of integration with something like Preve. Is there a, with Credit is there a, like a scripting or a programming component that could be added? Is that something that they're thinking about currently? Well, there's nothing like that now. Maybe some kind of a scripting language would be a good way to put a, uh, a critter selector or an observer of some kind in there that chooses specimens to clone or save. Because I keep thinking of what kind of processes could be responsible for something like that. And it seems to me you'd need all kinds of them working in a uh, combination. It would uh, have to be really intelligent. It might be better to just let people write their own, uh, you know, an array with the critters in it. And they can go through and look at the statistics for each critter or the overall world statistics and respond to those with the Lua or uh, Rex or something. Certainly. And I mean, I have to give a shout out to Dave Kerr and AI Planet as well here because Dave early on really found that, you know, if you, if you couldn't build better creatures faster, the easiest way was to actually create an interface that encouraged other people to create creatures. I was thinking about this recently. He had kind of tiger-like creatures, duck-like creatures, salmon-like creatures, shark-like creatures, all contributed by users relatively early on. And I think this this is really the um, the idea of Brevet as well in terms of actually having a, a relatively open architecture that allows people who have particular interests to write code into the environment. So for some things it doesn't work. For some artificial life simulations it doesn't work. But certainly when, you know, when I was first pitched doing a, a scripting language for Noble Ape, it took me a, a couple of iterations to get my head around it, but it certainly enabled a a new group of users to get involved. So, I mean, if I could give any feedback to the crediting creators, maybe some some kind of interactability. I mean, they already seem to have, uh, you know, a user base that would be relatively receptive to that kind of thing by the sounds of it. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely a good idea if you, if you can if you can get that kind of functionality in there. Um, something where it, it uh, just has a callback in this script every time it changes frames or every time it bursts a critter, something like that. And you can just specify it on the command line, the script that's running in the background. The guy in the IRC, he's in the chat today as well, SEH, he said we should have a sort of a Quake console in there. Certainly, I mean, visualization is also part of it. And I wanted to bring Bruce in here because there has been some EvoGrid development recently. And I think... I mean, ultimately, what you're trying to create with the EvoGrid, Bruce, is one of these great open-source artificial life projects fundamentally. So do you want to talk a little bit about the philosophy of visualization and maybe some of the philosophy of using existing black-box tools with regards to creating the EvoGrid? Yeah, and Peter may be listening in, and I welcome his comments. But to build the EvoGrid, instead of, um, of creating... Uh, basically a chemical simulator of our own or a particle or an abstract universe simulator. We chose what we felt to be a, a leading open source component called Gromax, uh, which has been has years and years of development in it. It has many users, institutional users. It's totally open source. And Peter was able to export the binary format from it because we had to put a feedback parse the binary format, put it into a new server architecture, and then allow distributed clients uh, to analyze the, the dump. And that's the real, <clears throat> the real goal of EvoGrid Deep, is to run it for some frames with hopefully millions or billions of, of particles, which some of which are, are objects, really, like molecules, 
dump the frame out at a certain point and let distributed analyzer clients go and look through it. And those analyzer clients will be based on the open source Boink framework, which of course people know more popularly as SETI at home from UC Berkeley. So the visualizer component of the EvoGrid is entirely screen savers that are looking for signs of emergent ratcheting up complexity, uh, i.e. structures, kind of regular structures or repeating structures in space or in, in time, or reactions in time, reaction sequences. So either behaviors or structures or both. And so you're, you're distributing, you're doing two things. You're, you're going to distribute your, your engine across a grid of machines so you can have the maximum computing power. But only very little patches of the simulation itself will be visualized in, in order to look for these, this self-emergent complexity. So the visualization isn't going to even, you're not, never dream of, of visualizing the whole thing at once. You're just trying to find interesting stuff going on. And when you find interesting stuff going on in an area, <coughs> the SETI at home grid or the EVO at home, EVO grid at home clients report back to the server and say, found something interesting. Why don't you, you know, you can do with that what you will. Um, what the server may do is say, well, let's throw more, more computers or cores and, and allow this little area isolate to have it, put more it in a power. Go, go ahead, Eric. Uh, I was saying you can isolate it and put it in a race at that point, start evolving it for locomotion parameters, and then put it back in the world. Um, well, of, of course, the, the, the challenge is what we're trying to do on the scientific side of the evil grid is to really do it in the terms of a black box where uh, we're allowing the simulation to kind of request up more, more computing resources right. based on our belief system about what's important, but we're not driving it. So we're, we're trying to let em the emergent phenomenon uh, come out on its own rather than teasing it out or having intelligent designers uh, making making widgets in the system. Pretty interesting. It's, uh, it's the opposite of the only A-Life application on Boink now I know of, Genetic Life, where he does the computation for the primordial soup on everyone's PCs. He gets like 50 trillion generations or something like this, and then he just writes out the final soup file, and uh, he says he gets a lot of parasitism, sort of distributed organisms, can't really isolate one to export. And that, but uh, maybe it's in need of uh, distributed analysis. Yeah, and that early on we decided um, we could have done it that way. Right. The, the challenge, the problem is um, for, for what we were trying to do, we were actually literally trying to simulate an actual full-size little toy universe, which means a cubic centimeter of dirty water in the primordial soups of, of the ancient oceans is a massive computing challenge. Just a cubic centimeter of that stuff, you know, some little bit of heat on one side and cooler on the other side. So if you're going to actually try to simulate the chemical origins of life, I mean, you're in for a huge thing. What, what, what yeah. really, in the lab, in, in chemistry, and, and, you know, I see this when I go to places like Flint in Denmark, those guys have a massive computing capability called, uh, you know, called chemical vessels. And, and there's massive computing going on in these vessels as they cook them in their ovens, and then they they shake them, and then they add new things. And there's all this computing going on in chemical computing. And then they have a half million dollar, million dollar microscope 
where they take a small sample and they look. And, and it's a very small sample. And they, in a time slice, they look with the human eye and try to see something. Or maybe there's an automated way of, of using microscopes now. But it's the same. It's, a, it's a really the same thing, except that we want to put a million digital microscopes on, a, on one small but uh, rich sample. Uh, very analogous to what Flint would do. Yeah, and each client should get these snapshots of a small region of space spanned in time so they can show if things are breaking off into smaller pieces or things like this. Yeah, and, and here's the problem, and there's a boundary problem, because the each each client that's, that's doing analysis is, comes up to a boundary where, you know, something interesting might be happening in the next boundary. So the server has to say, well, this one reported little rings forming, and then this one who was analyzing this patch some milliseconds or seconds later also reported a few rings in its little patch. So there's a bigger patch of, of rings forming somewhere, and therefore I, you know, the, the server has to make the decision what's interesting. And so really, you can't get away from having a central grid. If, if you try to distribute, if you try to distribute these primordial soups on people's PCs like that other project, you're going to have very trivial, very small primordial soups. Uh, and yes. you're, you're, you really want the biggest primordial soup you can possibly get and the most eyes looking at it. And, and that means we're going to have to go hat in hand at the, some point begging for some supercomputing grid that's willing to run the big version of this. So, you know, we'll need a, we'll say, we'll just need a million cores. You know, please cores, you know, sir. Yeah, like I don't know where you'll be doing the simulation if you can get supercomputer time for that, you know. I'm sure it'll it'll appear at the right time. And of course, uh, Gromax was built to run on a grid and does run on grids. So that that problem is that portion of the challenge has been at least met partially by the Gromax community. But then Peter nice. Peter's servers and everything have to deal with. I mean, in a sense, it's a massive development project. And what we're trying to build now is a very, very simple prototype to give a direction to say to the community, if someone was willing to invest millions uh, in a kind of Craig Venter style or, or in a big science way, uh, you could you could scale this up. If, it's, if, if our initial prototype shows interesting, not really results, but an interesting direction that, that we can actually operate this way. Right. Then, then some some wonderful benefactor appears from space or whatever, riding a rocket down to us and says, uh, "How much do you want on this check?" And oh, well. the institute and uh, rent the computer. We rent Amazon. This cloud. is uh, this is Earth Elements, this Gromax program. This is a uh, real chemistry simulator. That uh, that means the Evo Sim video where you uh, replicate them at the end can come true. Yeah, and you know, it's as we talked about in many previous uh, Biota podcasts, there's a community that says, you know, are you are you mad? Are you trying? Are you mad? You're trying to simulate chemical reactions, and even uh, right. which means the quantum level, which means active domains on molecules, which is a hard unsolved problem anyway. Um, are you are you completely insane? You should be doing much simpler universes. And Tom talks about chemical automata. Um, then there's the, the people like uh, the, the Flint people and the people who are in the 
protocells work who are saying, please, can you please make this close to chemistry because it can be a useful tool. And you're absolutely right. In you know 50 years, if yeah. we did something that was analogous to chemistry, we could potentially fabricate the things. Well, Tom Ray can't appear on uh, October 2nd's Bias Live because he's speaking at the Craig Metner Institute. So maybe Tom Ray is slightly closer to these funding sources than uh, the rest of us mere mortals. But I wanted to continue with the surveying to talk a little bit about uh, Framsticks and Darwin at home. And it's a pity that, uh, that Gerald can't be on the call this evening. My understanding currently from, uh, from talking with Gerald is that he... Well, the current, the dominant home source that he's developing currently is not actually um, traditionally open source, although I may be wrong. He has actually pulled it back a little bit to do some uh, development associated with a game-like environment that he's described over previous Bias Lives. However, I mean, Gerald is the kind of fellow where, again, like John Klein, like Larry, you can get in contact with him if you have any particular interests. And certainly in the past, he's... Uh, be more than receptive to share source code with me and, and I've passed him back source code as well, particularly with regards to planetary simulation. So, I mean, I think Darwin at Home is certainly a project which has uh, evolved outside of space and time in some regard, but followed uh, Gerald's own particular interests with architecture and uh, the kind of stuff that Dick Gordon researches with regards to embryonology and formation of embryos. And it, it really has a, a number of applications which seems to come through the, uh, the ongoing discussion with Gerald. So shout out to Gerald and with Ramsticks as well. I think it's a, a simulation which, uh, again, moves in a number of directions and it's really part of this kind of... Uh, you know, undergraduate academic tinkering artificialized simulation that Breve has existed in as well, this, this realm. I've mentioned AI Planet. I think the development with that, uh, as with, uh, as with Breve, um, has, has been slowed down slightly as Dave has a, a young child. Uh, but again, you know, one of these fundamental integrative open source artificial life applications in terms of actually creating creatures in a very rich visual uh, planetary environment and certainly I think with regards to uh, eight circuits, uh, Dave Kerr is, is really in that thinking in terms of moving artificial life in that particular direction. We've had the uh, apropos model in so far as these models go to A-Life, it's incredibly apropos. I mean, they talk about psychology being... Uh apropos to A-Life, you know, and in practice it isn't often, but here's a concept from psychology that I think very much immediately is applies. Certainly, certainly. And I mean, the recent correspondence I've had with Tom Ray certainly identified this kind of collective background interest that obviously Bruce is, is a part of a community as well that has been discussing the kind of edge of, of psychology, pushing the boundaries of psychology for, you know, 40, 50 years now. And really that is also vends quite neatly into the artificial life community. It, it's interesting that maybe contemporary computing is actually reaching that level, that kind of uh, at singularity or perhaps even post-singularity point where these kind of simulations can evolve and actually uh, provide answers in software um, to, to these framed challenges. So uh, in terms of my list of things to talk about, I wanted to conclude a little bit with Noble Ape um, because obviously that's a simulation that I invest a, a bit of time into. And with regards to scripting languages in particular, I was contacted this week by a fellow who's interested in implementing uh, behavioral trees and testing behavioral trees uh, in Noble Ape, which was an interesting application of ApeScript that I hadn't thought about in particular. I've already discussed the idea of 
uh, noble apes existing in a polyworld environment and also uh, polyworld uh, creatures existing, sea monkeys <laughs> existing in, in noble ape, in the noble ape environment. And certainly, uh, I think this is a future direction that I'd like to uh, encourage. I mean, if, if crediting exists as well in this kind of uh, artificial intelligence in a simulated environment space, then obviously there's, there's potential future collaborations there as well. And the, the Linux version of Noble Ape is very much up to date. And if they want to utilize the kind of undulating visualization methodology, it's certainly very easy to include kind of feeding pellets and other uh, related elements. Although having said that, I am now also looking at... Um, procedural movement. I've been developing, when Noble Ape was originally developed, there were predatorial cats that preyed on the Noble Apes, the, the fierce felines. And uh, after 15 odd years, I've decided to reintroduce the, the cats in the simulation environment. And as I was writing the code, they have smaller brains than Noble Apes that are um, you know, tuned more to, to cat-like behavior. As I was uh, writing the reintegration code, it occurred to me that the visualization in Noble Ape, as I think Bruce called a kind of mid-90s style visualization, really having another colored dot to represent the fierce felines as they kind of skulked and stalked and uh, lazed in the Noble Ape environment didn't really didn't really cut it. So I've been looking at procedural movement over the past couple of weeks in terms of reintroducing the felines and the apes and uh, a lot of the smaller entities and also the plants in the Noble Ape simulation to actually create a, a proper kind of... Uh, you know, current uh, visualization methodology that would also be part of the simulation methodology in Noble Ape. So that's uh, the transitional point with uh, Noble Ape currently. And in that regard, I'm now maintaining the three versions. Pedro, who was on an earlier Biota chat, I think, who had maintained the Linux version of Noble Ape for a number of years, works at CERN. Uh, and his work with CERN is kind of ongoing and um, you know it seems to be all consuming so I picked up the, the Linux version as well um, in terms of general maintenance but as, as, all, uh, as all the simulations that I've described this evening and, and Bruce and Eric has described as well you know these are all uh, well some of them more active than others but certainly all welcoming contribution feedback and interaction and I think what's particularly exciting is this discussion that uh, you know Eric has highlighted in terms of uh, not necessarily competitive behaviour between simulations, but perhaps future collaborative behaviour with the, you know what uh, Larry is doing with Polyworld currently, what's going on with Critting, potentially Noble Eight, potentially Framsticks, potentially even Darwin at home. I know um, we haven't discussed any of Scott Schaefer's simulations. Bruce, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the simulations Scott Schaefer has developed? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little out of date because we haven't had a great thumb meeting, but uh, he's done a number of you know from NanoPond um, to to really energetic CA simulations. I mean, he just keeps turning them out one after the other, variations on a theme. I think he's in a extremely productive uh, period. You know, I don't know how the economy has affected him, but you know, he's one of those people that the community really needs. Um, the free free agent who's generating really new, fresh stuff. Yes, I received an email today from someone who tried to download Scott Schaefer's visions of the Evo Grid, and somewhere in the biota move, his visions of the Evo Grid audio was lost. However, the two um, 
uh, Biota Live Lite uh, sections of his audio were maintained, so I put those in the in the feed instead. So for for folks who want to hear about Scott's most recent work, although it's probably about three or four months out of date now, I mean, go back and listen to his uh, particular visions of the Evo Grid, because as you say, it maps onto his kind of own development. Although the feedback that I've received is that. Um, he is relatively, as we all are who have work, he's relatively lucky to have work currently and seems to be investing a lot of time into that. In terms of the grey thumb movements, this is something else that we haven't really discussed in recent both lives. What's, what's your sense? I mean, you're going to the UK. What's your sense with regards to the, the grey thumb movements internationally and the ones that you've experienced, Bruce? Well, I, I think, you know, certainly our Bay Area one has been affected by this the downturn. Um, uh, OSHARE, I think, is leaving SRI, and that was our meeting spot. Everyone is kind of rushing around uh, trying to preserve their income, and people have shifted jobs. So I I think it's a lull. I mean, I don't, um, I don't foresee being able to do a great thumb meeting in the UK uh, on this trip. Uh, certainly, the the wonderful thing is if, if I'm able to be involved in Artificial Life 12, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm going to Denmark uh, in about a month, is is that uh, I will be a, a human physical conduit to the A-Life conference uh, that I can reach out, do some outreach to the Graytham-type world and suggest that they might be able to submit papers for that particular track. So, so I'm hoping that my continued involvement uh, as sort of in the cross, the, the crossing between the A life, the, the academic A life, and the wet A life communities, and the complexity communities, and the Evil Grid project, and whatever, I I can help encourage <coughs> more gray thumb meetings and presentations, and uh, and the involvement in the A life twelve conference. And I heard, I mean, perhaps inspired by his recent travels, that Dick Gordon has bought a camper van and created, I guess. It's not no further, it's further and further on, a kind of mobile camper that he's going to perhaps come and camp at the farm, your farm for a month and then go down and hang out with William R. Buckley for a month. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the roving bus that is, that is Dick Gordon's academic existence currently? Yeah, we've, um, we're trying to work out when we're going to be here because we have a big family matter and a move uh, we're trying to do from the East Coast or resolve in other ways. Uh, and But I'm definitely planning to be here for a week. Uh, it may be possible for him to be camped, parked here for a period of time. Uh, we just had, came through a crisis, a pig crisis today with a major vet visit. Gosh. So um, They're expensive creatures, aren't they? Yeah, well, it was a three-hour attempt to uh, deal with real biota in the form of piglet, who's uh, 80 pounds of fury. Uh, she's no longer a piglet, but trying to get her her four-year shots and uh, her toenails clipped and whatever, and it was just basically uh, me and two vets uh, manhandling this animal and trying to get her into a corner and get her injections and handle her. Uh, so it's definitely... And I got bruises and scrapes to show for, I'll tell you. I can imagine. But is the plan, I mean, is, is Dick's plan to write a sequel to Divine Action Natural Selection? Is he planning on just, I mean, he was certainly very energized when he came through here. His time with Steve Grand, and then even though we had only a very brief time together, I think left him with a 
with a kind of vibrant energy which has continued in his you know in his travels and he seems to want to continue on i mean i think this this move for him to uh, you know to get i mean when he traveled through here he was in a a small station wagon packed to the hilt with two relatively large dogs and, and Natalie um, as well. So I'm, I'm glad he's gotten slightly larger accommodation to do this trip. But I mean, d- my experience with Dick coming through was just absolutely wonderful. I mean, I, I really enjoy having people come through, uh, and particularly folks who are part of the artificial life community. And I think another exciting thing is, and particularly this, this applies to Eric as well, because Canada will be the place potentially relative near where, where Eric is currently talking to us from. I mean, Biota 5 is really the thing after Artificial Life 12 in terms of the, the conference that Dick is, is thinking about and planning currently. Do you want to talk about this, this kind of broader movement that Dick is inspiring in his travels? Well, I think that, okay. yeah, I, uh, what Dick seems to want to have the theme, and I think it's excellent, um, for Biota 5, which may be in, win- in winter pig, as Earth uh, Canadians are usually call it, um, is the origin of design, i.e., is design something that emerges from nature? Is it, you know, this is the, the, the form of, that the, the book took. Um, but design is everywhere around us, and um, if it emerges through evolution, it's an amazing thing. If it emerges through a creator, well, that's another you know, amazing thing too. But in a sense, I think he wants to vivify Dina, the book, Divine Intervention, Natural Action, in in the conference. And I think it's potentially timely and very interesting. Uh, If we have evil grid results by then, we may see the emergence of very, very simplistic designs uh, from the simulation. We could present that in 2011. But it sounds like through the other simulations that have been described this evening, there there are equally, well, maybe more long-term results that could also be uh, presented. I mean, Eric, as, as you're listening, and I think your first call related to your frustrations of not having a vibrant artificial life community around you with the sense that in in 2011... You will, uh, you know, you will be converged upon by all quarters from for artificial life developers the the world over. I mean, this must be an interesting idea to have Biota Five in your part of the world. Yeah, well, it is. You know, I I, I would go to something like that. Um, I, I just want to say, in the event of natural selection, you know, these simulations we're doing now that start with. Uh, types of bodies already in place and this sort of thing or might be the only ones that will result in phenomena like we see on Earth um, in the event of intelligent design. That is probably not the case, and the evil grid is likely to succeed, but we are uh, thousands of hours out from hitting the wall with the simulations like Polyworld and, and Critterding, and I think to a certain extent all of them are competing for users and uh, need people to, to uh, explore the phase space that, that, they, uh, that they open. And maybe that's what the show is about this evening, is really talking to, well, I mean, in, in, many, in many regards, talking to the choir about these simulations, but also, uh, you know, describing where they are currently and where they're going in a kind of collaborative fashion in the future. Yeah, well, I, I certainly hope, like, maybe we can start to see uh, critter exchanges between, uh, between Polyworld and, and Critterding, you know, uh, well, this is really the vision of Biota Eve as well, fundamentally. If those two simulations are roughly orthogonal, maybe we'll start to see an exchange of, uh, of DNA between them. That's not, uh, that's 
not clear yet. I mean, uh, software is heading towards openness. It's easier than ever now to run an application on any operating system. And uh, we had XML, and that came came to not so much. But uh, yes. this is the direction we're, we're we're going in. One of the things um, we're trying to do with Evogre, just to sort of put this in before we run out of time, is to allow anybody to develop uh, starting soups or to suggest and run an experiment, and anybody to uh, modify the physics to create the artificial universe and anybody to develop new analysis techniques to look for patterns. So really you know, really make it utterly open and hopefully scriptable in some way. Peter has a lot of experience with Python, so I, I suspect we might see Python emerge in there somewhere. Well, I'd like to thank you both for, for once again, you know, a, a, a wonderful discussion. It's a pity that uh, Larry Yeager couldn't be on the call. I think we need to start working out uh, better times, and this is going to come through with Mark Badeau and Tom Ray in the near future. Like I said, the next podcast will be on October the 2nd. It may feature Mark Badeau. It may feature something completely different, but the place to find that information is the Biotech Conversations mailing list. Wonderful to speak with you both this evening. And, Eric, I mean, for folks who are interested in, in getting crediting who may not be in the kind of uh, you know Linux community, is there a, is there a general movement to produce a, a Windows or a Mac version? Is that something that you could see happening in the near future? I think so. I think we'll see some ports. People should help us port it if they have those other operating systems. It's certainly relatively easy to to test. I mean, even even if it's not auto uh, config or anything like that ready, it's certainly easy to test the. Uh, the Mac-related port with the um, mobile eight version for Linux, for example, I downloaded a GTK plus um, framework for uh, for Xcode, and I'm sure that something similar. In fact, I'm pretty sure um, something is similar for the for the crediting um, uh, graphical API. I, I know that there should be one out there, so it shouldn't be too difficult. Yeah, it's all. Uh all OpenGL on SDL right now. I don't see problems moving it to other operating systems. I just I hope we get more users soon. There are more downloads after the beta release and uh, going on FreshMeet than uh, uh, maybe ever. Yeah, FreshMeet is key. FreshMeet is critical. Talk about what they're doing. I think it's really important they come on IRC and join the, the mind share because it's, a, it's an important thing not to be running in a vacuum. You can get uh, started in a big hurry by talking to people who already have and uh, so on, and if, if anything interesting happens, there should be people there to tell you whether or not it's remarkable. Oh well, we'll see what happens. Terrific. And Bruce, you're you're departing shortly for another European whirlwind trip, by the sounds of things. Yep, uh, PhD meetings in London. I'm going to see Galen in New Jersey, then PhD meetings in London, then Denmark uh, as well um, with Steen, Harold Fellerman, and Martin Hansig. So you'll be back sometime in November. Probably, yeah, around the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th of November, something like that. It's a long one, so I'm winterizing the farm here. Gosh, gosh. Well, once again, I'd like to thank you both for participating, and thanks to folks for listening. Good night.